may be seated. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 2. We are going to finish chapter 2 today, Lord willing. And then we will begin our series through the Psalms uh, next Sunday. We're going to finish out a chapter that really has been large. It's been grand. We've had the water turned into wine And then we've had Jesus driving out the tax collectors, the money changers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We come to a tiny little transitional passage, a passage that really could have been tacked on to last week's sermon. But as I was studying through this, I think that this passage is too important to just kind of give it an afterthought, to make it um, just kind of tacked on to the end of a sermon. It deserves a sermon in and of itself because I believe what John is going to do here is qualify for us and just clarify for us the fact that there are multiple kinds of belief. Remember John's purpose, his purpose statement, John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those are our banners. And so you come to people, even today, that say, oh, I believe in Jesus. And I think John would say, I'm not happy if you merely believe. There are multiple ways to believe in something. And I think he's going to remind us of that, perhaps for the first time in this gospel, but definitely in such a way that he's going to link it by example to Nicodemus. This is a transition passage that is linked specifically to what Jesus is going to talk about with Nicodemus in chapter 3. There are multiple types of belief. For instance, you can look at a parachute and say, I believe that that can hold me up as I'm falling, slow my fall down and save my life if I'm falling from a plane. We can believe that. We can intellectually understand that. We can agree with those facts. We can take classes on it. We can understand what that means for our lives. But if we're up in a plane... And we're falling out of a plane, if that plane is going down, and we're falling out, and we merely say, holding on to a parachute, I believe it can save my life, I believe it can help me, I believe it can keep me from dying, but we don't put it on, and we don't pull the cord, and let it actually do its job, then our belief truly leaves us dead. (laughs) It truly would kill us. We believe, but it's not enough. It's not right. It's not correct. It doesn't prove itself. Even though we believe true things, we are not believing in a way that would save our lives. The same is true of Jesus. We can believe that he exists. We can believe many things about him that are absolutely true. But it doesn't mean that it's saving belief. For instance, if you go down to chapter 3, and remember, chapter divisions versus those breaks were not in the original. Those are given to us. I think that they're helpful sometimes. I think the majority of times they're helpful. They can also be harmful to us because we kind of think of it as a chapter break where we are done with one train of thought and we're moving on to another train of thought. But as you can see, you can see the flow here. There's something crucially important in John's mind that would make him write these things. Let's actually start in verse 22 of chapter 2. We'll read this passage and I want to just make some observations about it before we dive in. John chapter 2, verse 22. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, 
his disciples remembered that he said this, that he said that they were going to destroy the temple, which is his body, and that he was going to rebuild it in three days. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, that this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The end of chapter 2, John writes that Jesus knew everything about man. He knew all men. He knew what was in man. John 3 starts, there was a man. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think John is trying to prove what belief that is not saving belief looks like. Look at Nicodemus' belief. He's a man, just like the men that were in, in verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2. He's a man. And he sees in Jesus deity. You are sent by God. You at least are a prophet or a teacher sent by God. And the reason I know that is what? No one can do these signs, verse 2. Verse 23 in chapter 2, many believed observing signs. Nicodemus believed observing the signs, but Jesus says to him, that's not going to work. That's not going to get you into heaven. So Nicodemus has faith. He has great faith. He has amazing faith. He believes in Jesus, but it's worthless faith. It doesn't profit him anything. He's not saved. The unbelieving Jews were seeking a sign. Nicodemus says, we see the signs. All of these verses are connected by this transition passage in verses 23 through 25 about what we believe. What do you believe? There are two very clear truths that we're going to see this morning in these three little passages, these three little verses. Belief, or truth number one is this. Jesus knows everything about us. Jesus knows everything about us. And truth number two is that not all belief is true saving belief. So number one, Jesus knows everything about us. And number two, not all belief is true saving belief. Let's look at the first truth in these verses. Jesus knows everything about us. Verse 23, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. This is still right after the cleansing of the temple. And many believed in his name observing his signs, which he was doing. It's really crucial to see why John or how John connects how they got their belief. They believed by observing, right? Observing is that participle that modifies um, the belief, the main verb. Um, They believed. Why? How? Because they observed signs. Why did the disciples believe back in verse 22? His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture. They didn't believe the signs. They let the signs point them. It's it's good to see the signs, but they let the signs point them to the Scriptures. They believed the Scriptures, and they believed the words which Jesus had spoken. The Jews are believing in the signs. But Jesus, 
That's a strong contrasting statement. They believed, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself. My Bible says entrusting himself to them. That word entrusting is the same word in verse 23 as believed. Jesus is not believing in them. They believed in him. Jesus didn't believe their belief. He's not believing their belief. Why? Because he knew all men and because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he knew what was in man. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows all things about us. He knows all mankind. And John specifies it in three ways. I'll give you kind of three sub points. Uh, Jesus absolutely knows everything about us, and John specifies it in three ways. Number one, Jesus knew all people. It says at the end of verse 24, he knew all men. He knew everyone. He knew what mankind is like. He knew that we are fickle in our faith, that we move from one thing to another. We're fascinated by one thing, and then the next moment we're looking at something else. Um, we had a, a beautiful, precious moment driving in the car on the way here when we're listening to a song by Stephen Chris Chapman called The Treasure of Jesus. And uh, I'm thinking about this song, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little choked up because I'm, I'm thinking about Chelsea. And my greatest desire for her is to treasure Jesus above all things. I, I want her to love Jesus more than anything in this world. And so I kind of turned to her and I said, did you like that song? Yes, I like the song. Did you think it was a pretty song? Yes, it was a pretty song. You know it's about Jesus. And that, Chelsea, that is my prayer for you above any song in the world. My prayer for you is that you would treasure Jesus more than anything this world has to offer you. And she goes, that's nice. I love you, Daddy. There's a doggy outside. Moment gone. Um, that's what happens with our faith. Jesus knows that. It's not just little kids. It's us as well. Jesus knows that we look and we go, wow, this is the latest, greatest thing, and I'm going to follow it and trust it and believe it, and then something greater or newer or more fascinating comes to mind or comes to view, and we walk away from what we once believed. Jesus knew that people were looking at what he was doing. They were blown away and excited by what he was doing, but he knew that they were going to walk away. They were going to fall away. So he knew all people. Number two, um, John says that he knew what was in man. This is kind of the second sub point. He knew what was in man. So not just he knew all men, verse 24, but he knew, end of verse 25, what was in man. So he didn't just know about human nature. He knew every single person's heart. He didn't just know what they were like as a whole. He knew what was going on on the inside. didn't just know what they were like. He knew what they liked on the inside. Their affections, their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their beliefs, their doubts. Jesus knew it all. And again, we're going to see that in the next couple chapters. He's going to go to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, as we read, is going to say, you're an amazing teacher, you're a prophet. You're a prophet. You were sent by God. Now, in Communication 101, we would say, Jesus, this is how you respond. Why, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that you saw the signs. You knew the signs pointed to the fact that I was sent by God. Can I tell you my mission from God? Can I tell you why I was sent? Now let me lead you into an understanding of the mission. Just slowly but surely taking what he said, walking with that. He doesn't do that at all. Um, Nicodemus says, hey, we know that you were sent by God. And Jesus says, hey, no one can come to God unless you were born again. What did that have to do with what Nicodemus was saying? It didn't have to do with necessarily what he was saying. It had to do with what was going on in his heart. And so Jesus takes the words and kind of sweeps them to the side and says, I know what's inside of you. You think that you can earn your way to God, 
And the whole point of John 3 is the Spirit's the only one that can give you life. You can't earn your way to God. Same thing with the woman at the well in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. He's going to go straight after her heart. She's going to say, um, do you need a drink? Here's, here's water. We're going to talk about the water issue. And then he's going to say, hey, um, you're with somebody who's not your husband. That's not, a, that's not what she was wanting to talk about. But he knows her heart, and that's what she needs to deal with. What's standing in the way between Nicodemus and God is the new birth. So Jesus goes to that. He knows it. What's standing in the way between the woman at the well and God is immorality that she will not give up. And so he speaks to that. He's just going to keep doing that constantly. He's going to deal with the Gentile official. He's going to do that with the pool, the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's just going to keep going after the heart issue. Why? Because he knows what is in man. He knows all people. He knows about us all. He also knows what is in us. And then number three, John says he doesn't need anyone to help him. He doesn't need anyone to help him. At the end of or the beginning of verse 25, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man kind of clunky it's it's good with what the original is saying but i really actually like the new living translation in this one no one needed uh to tell him what mankind was really like no one needed to tell him what mankind's really like he knew he created mankind and he knew what was going on inside the amazing reality of these three verses is that jesus knows everything about everyone and no one is excluded here No one is left out. Not us. We aren't left out. Jesus knows exactly what's happening in our hearts right now. You realize there is only one person in the universe that knows everything about you. And it's not even you. You don't know your own heart. Your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. You don't even know your own heart. Your spouse doesn't know your own heart. Only Jesus knows your heart. And since only God can know what's inside of you, Jesus has to be God because he alone knows. He's the only one who knows everything about you. He knows your greatest fear. He knows your greatest worry, your greatest anxiety. He knows what's going to slow you down from getting up in the morning tomorrow. He knows what's going to be the fear before your feet hit the ground tomorrow. He knows what your greatest concern is. He knows what your greatest joys are, what your greatest desires are. He knows it all. And he speaks this morning with tenderness to your heart in the exact same way that he spoke to the people, to Nicodemus, to the Samaritan woman, to all the people that he spoke with over 2,000 years ago. He loves us. That's the shocking thing. You would think that the more somebody knows about us, the further away they would want to get from us, right? Jesus knows everything there is to know about us. And he says, I want you. I loved you. I died for you so that you could be mine. It's amazing. So very clearly from this text, we must stand in awe of the deity of Jesus because he knows everything there is to know about you. He knows what's going on in your heart. Just like the temple was laid bare before him, so too our hearts are laid bare before him. Only God can do that. Jesus has to be God. That's point number one. He knows everything there is to know about us. But the implication of that, specifically in this passage, is that Jesus knows who has saving faith and who has false faith unsaving, non-believing, truly not genuine faith. Jesus knows everything there is to know about us. And then point number two in these verses, not all belief is true saving belief. You cannot fool Jesus. He reads our hearts like a book. You can fool everybody else, but you cannot fool Jesus. 
He knows what true faith is. He knows who has true faith. He knows who has false faith. John 6, 64, Jesus says, There are some of you, speaking to his disciples, who do not believe. And it says, Because Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So John chapter 6 is proof of John chapter 2. John chapter 2 says, I know what's inside of you and I'm not believing your belief. I'm not entrusting myself to you. You claim to believe in me and I'm not saying, yes, way to go. I'm saying, I don't believe your belief. And he proves true in John 6 when the majority of the disciples fall away, of the followers of Jesus, not the 12, but the followers of Jesus fall away. Jesus doesn't believe everyone's believing But we would say, and this is where the the question comes. This is where clarification is needed. We would say, yes, but they believed. Verse 23 is very clear. They believed in his name. Doesn't the Bible say that if we believe in Jesus, we will be saved? They're believing in Jesus. What's wrong with their faith? Before we get into, I'm going to give you kind of three points that we can walk through. But before we walk through it, we need to see one very clear implication of this passage and really the whole of the New Testament. An author can use the word believe in reference to Jesus and it not be saving faith. He's going to say these people believed in Jesus and then in four chapters later and six chapters later, he's going to say they left him and they wanted to kill him. He's going to specifically say those who observed his signs wanted to kill him. So they believe him but it's not saving belief. So at the very least, we can say the implication clearly is that the word believe in the New Testament does not always mean that a person has genuine, genuine saving faith in Jesus. So let's answer this question. What was wrong with their belief? Question number one, what's wrong with their belief? Not all belief is true saving belief. So point, sub-point number one, what's wrong with their belief? There's two clues that we have in this passage. Number one, the word signs in verse 23 They observed his signs. They believed because, modified by the participle observing, they believed because they saw his signs. It terminated, the belief terminated on the fact that he was doing cool things. It didn't terminate on the fact of who he is, what he claimed about them. The next best clue that we have of why their belief is wrong, not only is it because it's in something other than Jesus himself, it's in the signs, it's in the peripheral things. It's not, they're not letting those point to him, to Jesus. But the second is the context of Nicodemus. Remember, 23 through 25 set up chapter 3. And Nicodemus has faith. Nicodemus believes that Jesus is at least a good teacher, if not a prophet that is sent by God. But his faith is not saving faith. It's wowed faith. It's signs, wonders, signs, seekers. It's faith that says, I see what you do and that's really cool to me. It's not faith that says, I need you. I need who you are. It's the whole point of John chapter 6 when we get to it. Jesus says hard words. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, those aren't hard because he says that these words are spirit and truth. I'm giving you an analogy. I'm giving you something to be able to give an example. But they take those words and say, those are hard. We don't want to believe those. The whole point is, you're wanting the things that I have to offer you. Feeding the 5,000. You're wanting the signs. You want a magician as as a king. But I tell you the truth. If you want those things, but you don't want me, 
then you do not have saving faith. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you partake of what I have to give you, me, nothing else, then you are not truly saved. For instance, in this passage, there are people that are observing the signs that are believing in him. Here's a question. If Jesus had gone to them and said, I'm so glad you believe in me. Do you know, number one, I'm going to go die and be killed on a cross And number two, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't turn and follow me, then you are not truly saved. If he had preached the gospel of surrender and self-sacrifice, of repentance, of bearing your cross daily and following him, what do you think they would have said? Well, we know what they're ultimately going to say, which is, we don't want that. We wanted what we thought we were getting from you, which was just a miracle worker, a really cool guy that could do amazing things. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow into battle, a man who could raise the dead. I'll follow that man into battle. You know, just before the, the battle starts, hey, by the way, if I die, can you just come find me and raise me from the dead? I will fight the most valiant fight you've ever seen. If you can just promise me, you'll come find my body and raise me from the dead. They wanted to follow him because of those things. They didn't want to follow him because of the gospel. There are other places where this happens in John. Go to John chapter 7. This, this passage John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is so stark. And if you read it carefully, I had, I, I've been reading through the Gospel of John almost every day. I try to read through it just to get the whole picture as we're going through this Gospel. And almost every time I come to this passage, especially the first couple times I read this, it, it was almost as if this is a misprint. It's almost as if this was wrong, this was incorrect. And then the more I looked at it, the more I realized this is exactly the point of John chapter 2 and what we're looking at this morning. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So these same people that loved him and observed his signs and believed in him in chapter 2 are wanting to kill him. Verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, so this is his family. Let's listen to the words carefully. Leave here. And go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. So they're saying, leave us here, go to Judea, so that your other followers, this isn't 12 disciples, this is followers, people that claim to believe in you, can also see your works. Meaning what? We've seen them. right? We've seen your works, we've seen what you do, and we want everyone else to see what you do. Why? Verse 4, because no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So this is a, it's a good statement, right? Um, get more followers. If you want to be known, show your magic to the world. They had seen his signs. They believed his signs. They believed he could do what he was doing. But then it says, verse 4, so they're saying, we, we see your signs, we love what you're doing, and we want you to do it with other people. And they say those words because, verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. This made no sense to me. This made no sense to me. Why would they say, we have seen your works and we want more people to see your works? Don't do them in private, do them in public. And they're saying those words, verse 5, this This was where I thought, this has to be a misprint. I went back, nope, there is an absolute specific Greek word that means because. They said these words because they didn't believe him. That makes, I I don't know about you, that makes no sense to me. 
Go to Jerusalem. Keep performing your signs. Get more followers because we don't even believe in you. What? That makes no sense to me. What are they saying? Go to John chapter 5, verse 44. We'll, we'll detail this a little bit more when we get to John 7. But John chapter 5, I think, answers part of it. Um, drop down to verse 44. How can you believe? The rhetorical answer is no, you, you can't. How can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So his brothers saw the signs, but they didn't believe. And Jesus says here, how can you believe if you're not seeking my glory, but your own glory? How does that connect? I think John 7, the brothers are saying, could you please go do more miracles so that other people see your miracles and go, wow, you must be the son of God. We don't believe it, but we want to get more glory. And the more that you do miracles, the more people say, isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph? Isn't this the guy in Nazareth? And we go, yeah, he's our brother. Give us money. They want glory. They don't want God's glory. They don't want Jesus's glory. They're seeking their own glory. They are driven by a desire to enjoy the glory of the signs and the glory of the miracles, not the glory of Jesus alone. This is, again, terminating on something other than Jesus. This is why I love 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The end result, the, the whole goal of Jesus dying for you is not so that your sins could be forgiven. The whole goal of Jesus dying for you is not so that your sins could be forgiven. It's not so that you could feel better about yourself. It's not so that you could live a better life here on earth. Um, it's not even necessarily that you could enjoy the pleasures of heaven and not the, not the disaster of hell. The, the main fundamental reason that Jesus died for you is to bring you into a right relationship with God. All those other things were just something that stood in the way, barriers. Your sin made it impossible for you to have a right relationship with God. So Jesus forgives you of your sin, gets that out of the way, so that you can have a right relationship with God. But if all we're wanting is, I don't want to feel guilty about my sin anymore, then we're terminating on something that the gospel was not ultimately designed for. We're terminating on something that says it's a good byproduct of the gospel. But it's not saving faith if it just stops at something other than I just want God. I want Jesus. I want him. And I will surrender everything to him. The brothers were wanting Jesus to go public with his signs so they could ultimately ride his coattails in fame and fortune. Matthew 5 says the exact opposite. The only way you come to God are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't come saying, I have something to offer you. It's only those who mourn and weep, those are the ones who will be comforted. Mourning and weeping over their sin, over the fact that it's separating them from God. I want God, but I have sin in the way. So I mourn and I weep over that. And that's what happens. When we mourn and we weep, God takes it out of the way and he comforts us by drawing us to himself. Those who say, I'm not too bad, I'm okay. Those who say, I don't want Jesus, I just want what he has to offer. That's a different gospel. Ultimately, it's a very precarious thing to be a sign seeker. I'll just give you some verses. You can write these down. Matthew 24, 24. 
says that false prophets would arise, will arise, and perform great signs and wonders. And many are going to believe them in the last day. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10 says the same thing. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and wonders. And Paul specifically says people believe in him, the lawless one, who's performing all these signs and wonders, because they refuse to love the truth and in doing so are, are not saved. The alternate to loving the signs is loving Jesus. It's loving the scriptures that point to Jesus. Instead of believing the signs, believe the scripture and the one who performs the signs. Ultimately, one leads to saving faith and one does not. So what's wrong with their belief? It's not a belief in Jesus and his person. It's only a belief in what he can do, and they're excited about that for their own benefit. I just want to follow Jesus because... Um, He can give me bread when I'm hungry. So that leads to another question. As I was was thinking through John 2, here's the question. What can you believe about Jesus without being saved? This isn't exhaustive by any means, but I just wanted to go through some of these things. You can believe that Jesus is God and not be saved. You can believe that Jesus died on a cross. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You can believe that Jesus is the only way. You can believe in a heaven. You can believe in a hell. You can believe all those things and not be saved. Just like you can believe that a parachute has the power to save you and the ability to save you, but if you don't put it on, it won't save you. James chapter 2, verse 19, you know this passage. The demons believe all of these things that we just said. They truly believe there's a hell. They've been there. They believe there's a heaven. They've been there. They believe that Jesus died on a cross. They loved that moment. They also believe that he died on the cross for sins because at the moment that they loved the most when he died on the cross, they realized that their power was undone. The power that they had in sin was undone and they were rendered powerless. They know Jesus is the only way because they're working to try and get you to believe there's another way. All roads lead to God. They know these things. They believe that Jesus is God. And James, in that context, says demons believe that, and they tremble. The question is, is what you profess to believe actually working truth out in your life? Is it, is it making a difference? That's the whole passage of faith without works is dead. So what is saving faith? What sets genuine saving faith apart from intellectual agreement? If we know why the Jews are wrong, and and in their belief they weren't genuine, if we know that there are many things that all of us believe that we can believe without being saved, there should be a warning in these words. So the question is, okay, then what's saving faith? What tips it over from I believe these things to I'm actually saved? Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. Actually, verse 11. Jesus, this is in John chapter 1, verse 11, came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That word even at the end of verse 12 doesn't have to be there. And if it's not there, it's, it's not there in the original Greek. If it's not there, 
then believe to those who believe in his name is equal and synonymous with receiving. So verse 11, those who didn't receive him do not believe him, but as many as received him who believed in him, God gave them the right to become children of God. So what is saving faith? Saving faith is believing, yes, intellectual things about who God is, about who Jesus is. It's believing true propositional facts about God. But then it moves from that to a receiving him. It's a receiving of him that changes your life. It's a receiving of him as Lord. Um, Turn to Romans 10 really quick. Romans 10, this is a passage that many people will go to and say, no, you just have to believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus died for you and God raised him from the dead. That's all you need. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just say, I believe him. Just believe he exists. But if you go, verse 10, it qualifies it. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, says the same thing as God, resulting in salvation. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are saying, Lord is just master. You are saying, everything that I have lived for, Every hope, every dream, every goal, every sinful desire, every good deed, everything that I've ever lived for, I crucify that and you command everything I do. It's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live. So how do you have to receive Jesus? You have to receive him as Lord of your life, as master, as the sovereign over everything you do. If you say, Jesus, I receive you as... For instance, the Jews here in verse 11 of John 1, they didn't receive him. They received him, but not in a saving way. They received him as, maybe we could say, butler. They received him as, you do good things for me. And when I ring my bell, you come and you give me what I want. They received him as magician. They received him as really cool dude. But they did not receive him as the only way they could be saved. They didn't receive him as the punishment for their sins. They didn't receive him as Lord, as the one that they would turn their lives over to. You see this in John 6. Go to, uh, go to John 6, back from Romans 10. Go to John 6. One of the saddest parts of the Bible. Um, Jesus says that there are Only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have a part in the kingdom. Drop down to verse 60. John 6, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, so this is all followers, not just the 12, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And if you go all the way down, verse 66, as a result... Of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. How can you tell somebody who has faith but it's not saving faith when they are constantly saying, I don't think I'm going to follow Jesus in that? I don't think so. Those are hard words. I don't agree with them. Um, What do the disciples do? How can you tell what saving faith is? Saving faith is what Peter says. Jesus turns to the disciples, to his 12, and he says, are you guys going to leave too? This is a decisive moment. Many of my followers are saying, you're saying hard things we don't really agree with, we don't want to agree with, we're just not going to follow you anymore. 
And so Jesus says, you guys too, what are you going to do? And Peter says, Lord, this is verse 68, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those crazy words that you just said, we don't understand them. We might have a problem with them, but they have, they have eternal life in them. We, we believe them. We don't, we don't get them yet. We're struggling with them, but, but we believe them. We believe them. Saving faith shows itself by saying, God, what do you want me to do? I will, I will bow the knee to you as Lord in every area of my life. doesn't mean that we're perfect in that. We're never going to be perfect in that. But to as many as received him who believed in him, God gave them the right to become children of God. And then John specifies at the end of that verse that it's not by the will of man. It's not by anything you can do. The Jews were saying, love me because I'm a Jew. Accept me because of what I've done. And Jesus says, all of those works will not get you into heaven. They say, fine, we're not following you. It's not of the will of man. It's not of the works of the flesh. It's only by the Spirit that you are born again. Mark chapter 4, parable of the soils, shows this. Um, Three of the four soils believe, quote-unquote, only one says, I don't, I don't buy this. The, the, um, the soil that the bird just comes eating, it's gone. It can't even grow a, a root. But three of the soils, the seed falls on it, and it starts to grow roots, and it starts to bear fruit. They believe with joy, they accept, they receive, and then something comes, and they stop. Something comes, and it either tears it out, um, they stop bearing fruit, something changes them, whether it's tribulation whether it's the cares of this world. Uh, Mark 4 details it all in Jesus' parable. The bottom line is only one of those soils is saved, and it's the soil that says, I believe and I will follow you and I will never quit. I will follow what you say. Even though there are hard statements in this book, even though there are things that I want to do that you say I can't do, even though there are things that I don't want to do that you say I must do, I will do it because you are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my Master. John 8, 31 since we're in John 6, just go to 8.31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, the same people in John 2, same Jews, believing, quote-unquote, believing Jews, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He's saying you're going to go through things that are going to test whether or not you really believe. So you can say, you can profess to believe, Absolutely. Demas professes to believe. In Colossians, we saw that he had followed Paul. He had been on a missions trip. But then he falls in love with the world and finally says, I don't really think I believed anything. I don't, I don't want to follow Jesus the way that I used to follow him. So Jesus says, yes, Jews, you believe, verse 31, but it will only prove whether or not you are truly saved, whether that belief is true. Remember, he didn't entrust himself. He didn't believe their belief. And so here's a test case. Will you follow me? Will you do what I tell you to do? Ultimately, they're not going to. 1 Corinthians 16:22 says, If you do not love the Lord, if anyone does not have love for the Lord, does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. The Jews loved his miracles. They didn't love him. They loved his signs and his wonders. They didn't love him. So, in conclusion, four points. Just, just to briefly summarize this, these three verses. Number one, be amazed at Jesus' knowledge of you. Be amazed at his knowledge of you. That he loves you 
even though he knows everything there is to know about you. Despite that fact, he loves you. In fact, that probably makes him love you even more. It's also interesting to think. If Jesus knew everything that there is to know about man, which he did, you would think that he would avoid dangers. You would think that he would avoid the, the, the dangers and the destructive forces that he saw in people's hearts, namely Judas. Not only did he not avoid it, he picked Judas to be one of the twelve. He knew Judas was going to betray him. He picked him, so his omniscience, his all-knowingness was used to get him to the cross. That's why he says, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. This is the wonder of the cross, that he uses his knowledge to get himself killed so that you wouldn't have to die. Be amazed at his knowledge of you and his love for you. Number two, this whole account, these last two sermons are a beautiful picture of salvation. First, you have the cleansing of the temple. God hates sin. The Jews were turning a blind eye to sin. They didn't call sin what it was. Remember, that was the end of last week's sermon. You must hate what God hates, and you must love what God loves. If you don't, you cannot truly follow him, because ultimately he's going to tell you to do things that you don't agree with. And that's the deciding moment. A true follower of Jesus will wrestle with that and will say, you are master, you are Lord, you are sovereign, and I will follow you. A true disciple will say what Peter says. You have the words of eternal life. We might not like them. We might disagree with them, but we're going to obey them because you have the words of eternal life. The Jews as a whole said, we don't agree with those words, and so we're not going to follow you. So God hates sin. Jesus cleanses the temple. We must understand that about ourselves. God hates the sin that we walk in. And because of that, we are destined for destruction. We're destined for his wrath. But Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up on the third day. He describes the picture of how to get rid of that sin in driving it out in the temple. He's driving out all the sinful practices that were happening. So too, he drives it out of our hearts through the work that he did on the cross. And then you must have faith to receive him as your treasure. You must have faith to receive him as the Lord of your life, as your everything. You must surrender everything that you are to him or else your belief in him will be like the Jews. It will be belief that says, we love the signs, we love what you can do for us, but we don't love you for you. We don't love you for you. Number three, God is sovereign over all belief, and God is sovereign over all unbelief. God is sovereign over all belief and unbelief. There are a couple passages here, you can just write them down, John ten sixteen and John six thirty seven. John 10, 16, and John 6, 37. He knows exactly how to plan both of them, belief and unbelief. He knows exactly who is going to believe and who is not going to believe. He knows exactly how to get you to believe, and he calls you and he draws you to himself. He is never thwarted in his plans by anyone's unbelief, nor is he ever prevented from saving his own. Just think in your mind, think right now of maybe somebody in your family or a friend that you have that doesn't believe in Jesus, hostile to the gospel. Do you truly believe that Jesus, it would be an easy thing for him to break their will, to call them to himself and save them? Their unbelief will not thwart his plan of salvation if he draws them. That's why we need to pray for our, our friends, our family members that don't know Christ. Lastly, fourthly, what kind of believer are you? 
You are a believer. I know you are. But what kind of believer are you? One commentator says, When John wrote this gospel, he knew that Jesus performed many signs and that the people said that they believed. John also knew that Jesus died and that while he had no intention of abandoning the believers, they could not avoid abandoning him. For John, then, there was good reason for Jesus not to believe people's believing. Thus, when we read the stories of John, we must not treat them simply as stories from the past. They are also, in fact, living portraits of humanity in every area. Accordingly, we need to understand that the living Jesus does not believe everyone's believing because he knows what is in them, and those words ought to stand as a warning to everyone. Turn to John chapter 12. We'll end here. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about three groups of people. There are always three groups in every tribe, tongue, and people group, in every language, in every history, in every culture, every generation. There are three groups of people. The first group believe Jesus for who he is as their life, as the only way to get to heaven because their sins deserve death and punishment. Jesus alone conquers that sin and that death. There's a second group, John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So they weren't letting the signs point them to him, so they didn't believe. Group number one, true believers. Group number two, true unbelievers. I'm just not even going to believe. Both groups see the same signs. Both groups let the signs point them in different directions. But there's a third group. Group number three, John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They believed, but it wasn't saving belief because there was something standing in the way between full, complete, total surrender of their lives to Jesus. Now, again, it doesn't mean, I don't want undue warning for your heart. If you're truly saved and you're looking inward and you're saying, I'm struggling today, I've struggled this week with my own will popping back up and God's will not being primary in my life. Welcome to the club. That's why we sang the song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But now you're in a battle. Now you know his will is the will I should live out. His word is what I must believe. And my flesh kicks against that, but I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess. I'm ultimately going to come back to a place of ultimate total surrender. An unbelieving believer will come to the place where they go, there's negotiable things. I don't know if he's truly the only way. I'm a good enough person. My good works outweigh my bad works. They're going to ultimately come to a place where they say, you can take it or leave it. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, those who would believe that way ultimately come to a place where they say, we want you dead. We want you dead. So how do we believe? What must we believe? We must believe Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe there is no other way for us to be saved. We must come to him with nothing in our hands but our sin and say, this is all I have to offer you. And I know that this sin is worthy of my punishment, worthy of my condemnation. I I offended an infinitely holy God, therefore infinite punishment is just, it's fair, it's worthy. But I believe that you took my place. I believe you died that death on the cross. You took my sin. 
You took all my guilt, all my shame. You took it. You destroyed it. You paid that penalty. You rose to newness of life. And now I'm turning from the very thing you died to free me from. I'm following you. Yes, I'm tripping. I'm stumbling. It's three steps forward, two steps back. It's the work of sanctification, and it's progressive. It's not immediate. But I'm coming to you, and I'm saying, everything that I am, I crucify myself. You tell me how to live. I've been bought with a price. Your blood has ransomed me. It's purchased me. Therefore, I am not my own. Command me. And I will love you because you first loved me. I will treasure you. Everything in this life is nothing compared to the greatness of our God. That's the gospel. So what do you believe? Do your works testify what you believe is true? Or do they prove that you're playing fast and loose with Jesus? What do you believe? God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that your spirit would do the work of confirming. Oh, he loves to do that. For those that are saved in this room, he affirms and confirms salvation. He affirms our adoption as sons and daughters. He loves to do that. And he wants to do that now. And so I pray that for those who are saved, they would test themselves to see if they're in the faith and there would be immediate assurance because of the evidences of grace in their lives. But God, I pray for those that have unbelieving belief. That they know the truth about who you are, but they don't know if they want to truly follow you to be a disciple. As you said to so many of your potential would-be followers, unless you put your hand to the plow and never look back, you're not worthy of following me. God, we, we fail in that, we stumble in that, we struggle, but we know it's wrong and we want to follow you forever. We want you to control our lives. You have bought us. So I pray that your spirit would work in the lives of those who may have unbelieving belief. That today would be the day where they would say, you know what, there are things about Jesus, there are things about God, there are things I don't agree with. And I've never fully surrendered all that I am to him. God, bring salvation to souls, even this day. And God, as we sing a song that we usually sing before a sermon, I pray that as we sing this after the sermon, that you would still do this work as we hear your word, as your spirit works on our hearts. As we read your word throughout this week, as we listen to sermons, as we read books, help our unbelief. And may we be like the true disciples who say, you alone have the words of eternal life. So we won't go anywhere else. We will stay here and follow you until we see you face to face on that last day.